What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, we bring you our top stories. Affirmative action is ended. Find out all about the Supreme Court's ruling this morning and how it will affect college students. Hunter Biden reportedly arrived for deposition today in a legal case with a computer repair shop in Delaware. He was expected to be questioned about his infamous laptop. Three retiring GOP senators earmark $1.5 billion in taxpayer money on their way out of Congress. But that's just a portion of earmarked money from 2022. U.S. authorities restart asylum appointments at a controversial border crossing in Texas. The latest round of appointments were halted after reports of kidnapping and extortion. Governor DeSantis vetoes a bipartisan criminal reform bill that was popular in the state legislature. Observers think it's part of an image overhaul for the election cycle. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is a landmark ruling by the Supreme Court today, striking down affirmative action used in college admissions. One of our star reporters, NTD's Iris Tao, joins us live from outside the Supreme Court right now. Iris, what can you tell us about this decision? Hey, good afternoon, Kevin. So yes, the Supreme Court this morning issued a landmark ruling officially ending the decades-long practice of affirmative action use in college admissions. So what that means is that basically colleges, universities going forward, let them be private or public, can no longer use race as a factor of consideration when deciding whether or not to admit a student or not. So this whole case started when a group of Asian parents and students sued Harvard University saying that they were discriminated against because they were Asians. So even though they got higher test scores, did well in extracurricular activities, it's still harder for them to get in compared to some African-American or Latino students. And they say that the same discrimination applied to white students as well. And of course, Harvard University, as well as the University of North Carolina, which was also sued for the same reason, argue that considering race is necessary because they have to promote diversity on college campuses. But this morning in this ruling, the Supreme Court ruled against Harvard and basically said that, quote, Harvard University and the University of North Carolina violated the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. And it goes on to say that eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Tracing this back to the Constitution, well, Iris, now that affirmative action is struck down, what will happen to student body diversity as colleges go about admitting students without considering race? That's a great question. So we know that diversity is such a big topic right now. But in this ruling, the Supreme Court said that actually nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life, so long as that discussion is concretely tied to that to the quality of that person's character and how his ability can contribute to the university. So basically, yes, you can still talk about your race, your, your background, your upgrowing, everything. You can talk about that in your college essay as well as in classrooms. But the only thing is that it won't be looked at as a single deciding factor that plays a major role in the college admission process. I see. So people's personal stories still can be considered. Iris, turning to some disagreement to this decision, three justices wrote dissenting opinions. The Biden administration has previously supported race-based programs. How are they reacting now? 
So yes, like you mentioned, some liberal justices, including Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, argue that considering race is necessary for the equal protection clause because it's you know, promote diversity and is basically fighting against discrimination. But the ruling, of course, went against that. And we know that the Biden administration has long been supportive of affirmative action as well. So President Biden is set to speak at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time at the White House this afternoon. So we do expect to hear more from the Biden administration about what's their take on it. Kevin. Well, thank you so much for this update, Iris. I appreciate it. Hunter Biden reportedly arriving at his deposition this morning. That's an illegal case with a computer repair shop in Delaware. Meanwhile, House Republicans say they'll investigate allegations against Hunter made by an IRS whistleblower. Hunter Biden, son of President Biden, being deposed today. He reportedly arrived at the building where the interview is taking place Thursday morning. That's part of a civil lawsuit brought by the owner of a computer repair shop in Delaware. John Paul Mac Isaac first filed a defamation lawsuit against Hunter in 2022. Hunter Biden responded by filing a countersuit over privacy issues and sharing of his data. Hunter brought multiple laptops to the Mac Repair Show in Delaware in 2019. One of those laptops contained sensitive information, which was later reported on by various media outlets. In his lawsuit, Isaac alleges that Hunter hurt his reputation by denying the laptop belonged to him. During Thursday's deposition, Hunter is expected to be made to confirm whether the laptop really belonged to him. Meanwhile, three top House Republicans on Thursday issued a joint statement pledging to investigate statements made by an IRS whistleblower. Each of the three has led different investigations into President Biden's family and government through their respective panels. They say according to whistleblower testimony, the Justice Department refused to follow evidence that implicated Joe Biden, tipped off Hunter Biden's attorneys, allowed the clock to run out with respect to certain charges, and put tax cheat Hunter Biden on the path towards a sweetheart plea deal. The whistleblower, Gary Shapley, who worked on the investigation into Hunter Biden, told CBS this week that they were barred from following certain leads after Joe Biden became the presumptive Democratic nominee for president. There were certain investigative steps that we weren't allowed to take that could have led us to President Biden. And you wanted to take him? We needed to take them. And you weren't allowed to take them. That's correct. Meanwhile, some Democrats are responding to Republicans' investigations. They suggest that Republican-led probes against the president are political and are intended to hurt the president's image. A government watchdog says three retiring Republican senators received more than $1.5 billion in earmarks for projects in their states as part of last year's spending bill. The senators are Roy Blunt of Missouri, Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, and Richard Shelby of Alabama. The trio's pork barrel projects are among the more than 7,500 others in the bill. Earmarks are federal tax dollars requested by individual lawmakers. The money is then included in larger spending bills for projects in their locales. Tea Party majority Republicans in the House banned earmarks in 2011. Senate Republicans followed suit in 2014, but earmarks returned to Congress in 2021 under a new name, Congressionally Directed Spending. Open the Books revealed that Republicans dominated the top 10 list of earmarkers in 2022, but Democrats spent more earmark money overall. Earmark advocates defend the practice as a way individual congressmen can ensure needed federal funding for worthwhile infrastructure projects, 
But Open the Books identified only $1.6 billion in earmarks going to roads, bridges, and highway construction and repairs. That's out of over $16 billion in total earmark money. U.S. officials are restarting asylum appointments at a dangerous Mexican border town. Just days ago, they suspended the process due to concerns of kidnapping and extortion. But word spread that migrants would be accepted without appointments at Mexico's Nuevo Laredo, and more than 1,500 people arrived sleeping in a plaza near the International Bridge. U.S. Customs and Border Protection said its CBP-1 mobile app restarted issuing appointments on Wednesday. Officials have urged migrants to use the app since the COVID-era Title 42 expired in May. In Loretto, the Texas city opposite Nuevo Loretto, customs officials also shut down the system for asylum appointments. That was less than two weeks ago once they learned that criminals were forcing migrants to pay $500 each to reach the bridge to attend their appointments. New York City is now providing more shelter to non-citizens than its own homeless resident population. City officials are struggling to handle over 100,000 people in its shelter system. And with over 50,000 asylum seekers currently in our care, at this point, we now have more people in the city's care that are seeking asylum than longtime unhoused New Yorkers in our shelter system. These are sobering numbers, I know. An even more sobering fact, showing both that we have what we have done, but that this is still unsustainable, and how much we need our federal and our state partners to help us. The majority of people now in the city's shelter system are illegal immigrants and other non-citizens who are seeking to stay in the United States for the long term. Many are people who illegally crossed the U.S. southern border but made asylum claims or otherwise requested legal status. Since last year, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has bussed illegal immigrants away from his border state to other areas of the country, particularly to Democratic districts like New York City. Williams Issam says the city has reached a tipping point. She said the city has opened 176 new shelter sites since last spring, but has virtually exhausted its capacity to shelter people. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has vetoed a criminal justice reform bill. It received overwhelming support from both houses of the Florida state legislature. The bipartisan bill sought to provide individuals with a fresh start by allowing expungement of their criminal records if their prior offenses were committed as juveniles. State Representative David Smith introduced the bill. The Tampa Bay Times reported that he believed it would benefit the workforce, address labor shortages, and primarily help individuals in Florida without any criminal convictions. No explanation for the veto was given by the governor's staff. However, Smith mentioned that his staff expressed willingness to work on improving the bill's language for possible reintroduction. Observers suggested that DeSantis vetoed the bill to present himself as tough on crime during the current election cycle. And just ahead, former Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake arrives in New York City on the latest stop of her book signing tour. Hear what local residents are saying. Solar panels for low-income communities, a new initiative of the Biden administration costing $7 billion. Is this what poor communities need? We'll get some analysis. Big U.S. banks are healthy. That's according to the results of the Fed's bank stress test. We'll have more for you in just a moment here on NTD News Today.
Welcome back. Carrie Lake stopped in New York City for a book signing event. The former Arizona gubernatorial candidate is promoting her new book as she travels across the country. Entity's Jack Bradley was there. Carrie Lake spoke to a crowded audience that packed New York City's Benny John's Steakhouse on Wednesday evening. She promoted her new book, Unafraid, Just Getting Started. Attendees lined up to get their copy of the book signed and take a picture with Lake. This is a story of, of how I ended up going from rural Iowa to somehow the middle of the political world. And I think it's, a, it's an encouraging story for people who feel like, what can I do? How can I help? Because we know our country is in trouble. We know our world is in peril. And each of us have a gift to bring to help out and, and to help save our country. Lake also highlights several issues that are common in many large cities, such as a rising crime and homelessness. She is a self-described America First Republican and says many people are banding together to resolve such problems, regardless of their political leanings. We need to get up and fight for our country. We have so much more in common as Americans. We all love this country. We need to come back to that. And I just, uh, I hope that you're inspired by this book. And many are inspired. Lake's book resonates with people like New York City's Madeline Brame. I like the title of her book, Unafraid because you have to be unafraid. You have to have courage. You have to have strength in order to make a difference in this climate. Several local Republican politicians in attendance said Lake's message resonates with them. America first is not just a phrase, it's a way of life. And it's the way all Americans should be, especially our elected officials, which we see too, too much nowadays that they're not. A lot of our officials, like the current president in this administration, are putting America last in places like China first. And people like myself and Carrie Lake, we obviously don't appreciate that, along with the rest of the American people. Others say that people like Carrie Lake offer a down-to-earth perspective. She's not a politician. She's a regular working woman who built her career in media. She's not a politician by any means, but she had the common sense to realize that if no one says anything and no one does anything, this is going to carry on forever. We're going to lose not just our state, but our entire country. Meanwhile, many New York City residents at the book signing said they had seen a dramatic decline in the state of their city. She's a fighter. I think, like I said before, there's a lot of people in New York who even uh, conservative Democrats who are now seeing the state of New York as it is and realizing that you do have to stand up, support your values and try to get back to the New York that we all loved, uh, which is not New York today. The former Arizona candidate lost to now Governor Katie Hobbs by over 17,000 votes in the 2022 election. But Lake contested the results of the election, saying that there was voter fraud. However, court rulings have rejected her challenges. Jack Bradley, NTD News. The Biden administration is announcing a grant competition to bring solar energy into low-income communities. It will be for private residences, and it's valued at $7 billion. We bring in an expert to offer some insight on this. Please welcome Kelly Sloan, a senior fellow in energy and the environment at the Centennial Institute. He joins us now to discuss this. Thanks for coming on, Kelly. Thanks for having me. This initiative is part of the Inflation Reduction Act's $27 billion Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. Is so-called green energy investment what these low-income communities need, or should this be used towards things like health care and education in order to benefit them? Well, I think definitely they would uh, be, be better directed towards things like health care and, and education. Uh, what low-income community needs in terms of energy is more affordable, abundant energy, and unfortunately, renewables don't provide that. 
uh, right now. Uh, the reason we need subsidies or the, that the government thinks they need subsidies in order to get these initiatives pushed out is because A, uh, solar in particular is not market ready uh, and B, renewables in general are not uh, at, at the point physically where they can provide the energy that's uh, you know needed to keep you know keep lights on keep air conditioning uh, uh, running that kind of thing you talk about market readiness nerd wallet says that it's fifteen thousand to twenty five thousand dollars for the system and the installation of these solar panels it's a lot of money can low-income communities afford this to begin with no they can't uh, and again you know it harkens back to a lot of the kind of fundamental or intrinsic problems that we have with renewables, uh, both solar and wind, uh, but in particular solar, uh, it's not dispatchable. You know, you can't, you can't just ramp up the sun when, uh, when you need it. It's a cloudy day here in Denver right now, and solar is not going to be that, be that effective in the first place. So uh, not only are you, you have extraordinarily expensive systems that you know, require all these, uh, all these raw materials, all this installation, and all this, but it's not terribly reliable. What uh, people in, in all communities, and uh, but especially lower income communities, need in terms of energy is something reliable. So when you turn the light switch on or turn on your air conditioning, it's, it's going to work. And that for now needs to come from dispatchable sources, uh, natural gas, coal, or nuclear, if we would ever uh, you know, decide as a nation to, to explore nuclear, which, uh, which is a far better option. And Kelly, can you explain why it's specifically important for low-income communities to have a reliable source of energy? Well, low-income uh, communities are the ones that are, you know, more impacted by uh, not have, you know, uh, by this. You know, the, uh, the you know they're the ones that are impacted by not having uh, air conditioning that runs all the time. That can, you know, obviously create some uh, some health issues. They're uh, they're the ones that you know they. They can't afford the backups that you know perhaps uh, perhaps some other, some others do. Uh, they have other needs as well. You know the uh, lower income communities have uh, you know uh, more community based needs such as as you mentioned in the beginning healthcare, education, uh, transportation, all of these sort of things that we can argue about whether they're this is a good investment or that's a bad investment. All of these would be better investments than something chimerical like. Uh, uh, like solar solar, uh, solar energy, especially when uh, you get back to the life cycle of solar energy and the creation of solar panels. Now we're getting into problems, as a lot of people have brought up, with uh, potential pollution problems in the creation of solar panels, uh, pollution problems with the end, end of life, with the storage of spent panels. Uh, geopolitically, a lot of the raw materials for these solar panels are coming from places like the People's Republic of China, uh, which we have a, not only an adversarial relationship with, but uh, whose labor force is, uh, you know, not operating under, under the best of, best of conditions. You know, there's uh, a lot of these raw materials for solar panels and like are being mined under horrible conditions and basically slave labor type conditions. Uh, then, of course, are, you know, all the trade implications. There's, there's a lot going into this, especially when we already have uh, in this country, uh, sources of abundant, uh, reliable energy that's dis dis dispatchable uh, that are available for all, for all communities, low income or otherwise. And Kelly, you make a lot of good points here, especially about the pollution and the geopolitical implications here that definitely need to be taken into account. The EPA, though, did say that it will improve air quality and create new jobs. Kelly Sloan, Senior Fellow in Energy and Environment at the Centennial Institute, it was really great speaking with you today.
Thank you very much. Big U.S. banks just passed the Federal Reserve's annual stress test. Results showed that large banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo have enough capital to weather a severe economic slump. For a deeper look, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks to a Fed analyst. And here with me is Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street. Now, the Federal Reserve stress bank stress test, it seems all 23 banks passed. Um, it, it seems to align with, with what Powell said, that the banks are sound and resilient. What do you think? Of course it is. And, and it actually reinforces that. One thing I'd like to, I, I think that's important about these stress tests this time is that they have posited a pretty realistic scenario, um, particularly involving commercial real estate that would put banks' loan portfolio under stress. So for that much, I think they've got a pretty good handle on what might possibly happen uh, if we enter a recession or enter a downturn. What would be the consequences if, let's say, the bank didn't pass this stress test? Would, would that mean in, in a realistic scenario, in a downturn, uh, the bank would default on its obligations? It's possible. I mean, we, we've seen recently what happens when the banks don't have enough capital to support their various endeavors in, with SVB and Signature. So that's the basic scenario where you get something like that happening. Their, the value of their assets decline dramatically and they don't have enough capital to support their efforts. How aligned are these tests to reality, do you think? Well, the, the problem with scenarios on the future is that although you can project some things quite logically, you can never, of course, know the future. What hits is unknown. So I think the Fed has done a pretty good job, as I said earlier, primarily focusing on, or at least bringing up, the prop potential problems in the commercial real estate area. That is something we know about. That's something we know will worsen in a recession. The Fed does what it can predicting into the future, but from so many other areas we know as well, nobody predicts the future very well, including the Fed. I mean, let's say JP Morgan, for example. I mean, such a large bank, is it even possible? Let's say we had a bank run. Is that even possible that the bank would uh, fail? No, because as we know, the Fed's, one of the Fed's primary jobs is the lender of last resort. And if any bank such as that became a problem, one, the fear would be very great, but the Fed would step in immediately, probably before that even became evident, hopefully, and provide enough capital. After all, the Fed can create as much capital as it wants and um, dole it out to the banks that need it. So that is not really a scenario because if JP Morgan is under stress to a degree that the Fed is worried about it, then there is an enormous problem in the economy. The 23 banks, they all passed uh, the stress test. That, yes. We should be confident about this. We, the, the takeaway here is we should be confident about the U.S. banking system. Yes, I would agree with that. The Fed is doing, the Fed is doing its job. It's certainly putting these banks to a very rigorous test. So I think for the confidence of these banks in the market, yes, I think you're absolutely correct. We can be sure about that. The problem with everything and with life, if you will, certainly in economic life, is that oftentimes the system and gets hit by things which are unexpected. By definition, if it's unexpected, we can't be sure what's actually coming. For what we see and what we know at the moment, yes, I think these stress tests provide a good window on what the banks are doing. All right. Thank you so much today. It's always great to speak with you.
Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. And after the break, the chief technology officer and a co-founder of DoorDash spends an hour as a delivery driver. He says it's a good opportunity to troubleshoot the app. AAA predicts record-setting 4th of July travel. It forecasts 43 million car travelers as a part of a larger number. We'll have those details for you so you can plan your travel when we return. Welcome back. For what it's worth, Reuters found that every past or current president of the United States who is still alive, except former President Trump, is descended from slaveholders. Let's dive deeper into this. Joining me now is Jane Hampton Cook, presidential historian and author of War of Lies. Jane, I'm really glad you can come on the show today. Thanks for having me. So former President Trump is not a descendant of slaveholders. So what? Shouldn't we be looking at his policies to decide whether or not we should vote for him? That's right. It's kind of a genetic fallacy to try to take someone's ancestors and push that onto them because, um, you know, that that's part of the logic branch of, of education is to teach people to find those fallacies. And this is certainly one of those fallacies. I mean, it might be interesting to look at people's genetic tree, you know, their genealogy tree, but what it really doesn't translate into policy. And that's what people care about at this stage of the game. So Jane, you're a presidential historian. Have we seen any precedent for people who are descendants of slaveholders impacting their policy at all? No, not at all. Um, it's just, it's, it's something that the left is trying to do. The left is trying to make race America's defining characteristic. And that is just not true. Our founding principles should be our defining characteristic, that we believe in individual liberty and that we believe in justice. And that comes from the Declaration of Independence and that over time we've rectified those areas where there's been injustice, like slavery, and we've rectified it you know, through a bloody civil war and through constitutional amendments. And that's, that's what guides policy today. And, uh, you know, the, the left is just really trying to divide Americans instead of bringing us together. And when we look backwards in that way, it, it, it doesn't give any inspiration for the future. I think that's what people really want out of their president. They want optimism and hope. Optimism and hope, it's music to my ears. Now, we talk about injustices in your research. What have President Biden and former President Trump done to resolve these? Well, you know, I think that with President Trump, you saw him with his economic policies in particular. Black Americans did better economically under President Trump than any president in recent memory. And that's that's what people care about. They care about, can they pay their bills? Can they buy groceries? Can they go and do some entertainment? Um, and so that's where the policies really are the most important, not, not, you know, from way back when. And, you know, even in, I look, when you do look back at the 1776 era, you see how the Declaration of Independence really spurred abolition. Abolitionists began to crop up in America because of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, they were selling Phyllis Wheatley's poetry when George Washington was president to raise money for the cause of abolition. And you are such a good historian, but I want the other half of that answer. What about President Biden? Oh, President Biden. Uh, what to say about President Biden? Um, you know, I don't think his policies have helped at all. The first day in office, he cut the Keystone Pipeline, and that was thousands of jobs, good paying jobs. And 
what president does that? And what president can just use an executive order to cut jobs like that? Um, the economy, Biden, Bidenomics is what they're trying to call it, is really not a good thing because everyone sees inflation. Inflation is affecting my family. It's affecting your family. Um, I don't think President Biden's policies are pro-America. He's certainly not putting America first. We have these bribery um, accusations hanging over him. And, you know, George Washington talked about if a president was involved in bribery, that meant he was in the last stage of moral corruption, moral and political corruption. And the founders expected the American people to call out that kind of behavior and to um, go through an impeachment process, frankly, as the Constitution um, calls for. Well, very important analysis from you. Jane Hampton Cook, presidential historian. I'm really glad to have spoken with you. Thanks for having me. Summer is heating up, and so are the travel trends. AAA is forecasting a record-breaking travel weekend going into the 4th of July holiday. Here's the travel forecast, along with some tips for everyone making the holiday trek. Independence Day is just around the corner, and the travel forecast is set to be hot. AAA is predicting that nearly 51 million Americans will travel for the 4th of July weekend, uh, and that's an all-time record for us. AAA's blockbuster forecast predicts that of those 50.7 million travelers who will venture more than 50 miles from home, more than 40 million will go by car. Friday is going to be the worst day for driving because everyone's going to be on the road at that time. So you can leave Thursday night or Saturday morning, that would be ideal. And with gas prices holding steady, spokesperson Andrew Gross doesn't anticipate much pain at the pump. As oil prices have dropped, the price at the pump has dropped too. So whereas last year people may have been paying $4.80 to $5 a gallon, now they're going to be paying $3.50 or less in most places. But the same can't be said for the record 4.2 million flyers set to take off this weekend. Airfare is up as much as 50% over last year. To avoid the inevitable trouble in the terminal, Gross says to travel early, travel light, and stay informed. Get to the airport on time, have the airlines app on your phone so you can check and see if there are any gate changes. And if you've got more travel plans ahead, be prepared, this season isn't cooling down. I think this is a real scene setter for what we're gonna see for the rest of summer. If the 4th of July is really packed, then probably the rest of summer, travel's really gonna be robust. Good news for the inflation-weary this 4th of July. The Independence Day cookout is going to be a bit more affordable than it was last year. A survey from the American Farm Bureau Federation says families can expect to pay under $68 for a 10-person cookout. That's down 3% from last year's record high. The estimated cookout price included 12 staple items. Hamburger buns, beef, and potato salad were up in price this year, but chicken breast, lemonade, and chocolate chip cookies saw price drops. Last year's average July 4th barbecue cost was almost $70. While it is nearly $2 less this year, it's still the second highest on record. A real-life undercover boss. An executive of the largest food delivery company in the country is making the stops. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on this one. Andy Fang is Chief Technology Officer and a co-founder of DoorDash. Today, he's a delivery man trying to find a restaurant for pickup. But the DoorDash app isn't pointing him in the right direction. It's this kind of error that Fang wants to solve. 
There was a mistake in the restaurant address, so we had to kind of walk a block and a half to get to the actual restaurant. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I think figuring out how to just get to the customer, I think we were fortunate to be able to walk instead of drive there. So now we're on to delivery number two. Thang is one of a growing number of executives who occasionally do their employees' hourly work. Starbucks, Ubers, and Lyft's CEOs are others that are trying to understand their employees' perspectives. But on Wednesday afternoon, Thang only made $15.50 for 51 minutes of work. We also saw that when we were picking up these orders at merchants that there's operational complexities that we had to solve for and even dropping things off at the customer address, you know, at office complexes or apartment buildings. Thang says he has made real changes to DoorDash's app based on his experiences, such as fixing a time zone bug. It's kind of a habit in some ways, you know, it's like I try to do it monthly um, and I think you just you enjoy doing it, and if Stanley or Tony are available, sometimes we'll do it together, but you know, really it's just an opportunity. Another new feature arose from employee feedback. Dash along the way lets drivers specify where they want to start making deliveries. Then the app assigns them orders that they can complete en route. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. DoorDash is going to start offering drivers the option of receiving an hourly minimum wage. Right now, they get paid a fee for each delivery. The hourly rate will depend on the region and will fall between $10 and $19.50 per hour. The change could help the company find drivers for less desirable deliveries and may also alleviate concerns that some drivers don't get compensated fairly. Drivers will only get paid for the time between accepting an order and delivering it, not the time when they are waiting for a new order. They can switch between the two payment methods and can still earn extra in tips. The company announced the change on Wednesday during its 10th anniversary Dash Forward event. And still to come, the Chinese spy balloon that traversed the U.S. was carrying some U.S. tech. Preliminary findings disprove the Chinese regime's claims of it being a weather balloon. We have those details. A new report is out from Australia into a state lawmaker's business dealings with China. It says a former premier engaged in corrupt conduct. Learn more after the break. Welcome back. The Chinese spy balloon that passed over the U.S. this year used some American technology. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. They cited unnamed U.S. officials with preliminary findings from a closely held investigation. The officials said analysis from U.S. defense and intelligence agencies found the balloon had commercially available U.S. gear. That was along with more specialized Chinese sensors and equipment. It was able to collect photographs, video, and other information and transmit it to China. The findings support the conclusion that the craft was meant for spying, not for weather monitoring as the Chinese regime claimed. Missouri's attorney general will be investigating a possible Chinese Communist Party outpost in the state. The so-called Chinese Service Center is one of seven such outposts identified in the U.S. And today's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Congresswoman Ann Wagner notified Missouri's Attorney General about the Chinese Service Center last week. She tweeted out at the time, the Chinese Communist Party has been trying to expand its influence globally, and we must put a stop to any efforts to gain a foothold in America. Wagner is the U.S. Representative for Missouri's 2nd Congressional District. 
Chinese state media reported there are at least seven of the so-called overseas service centers operating in the U.S. They are in St. Louis, Missouri, St. Paul, Minnesota, Omaha, Nebraska, Charlotte, North Carolina, Houston, Texas, Salt Lake City, Utah, and San Francisco, California. The centers are run by a Chinese regime intelligence service called the United Front Work Department. Missouri AG Andrew Bailey replied to Wagner on Wednesday and vowed to immediately investigate the matter. Bailey called the possibility of a CCP outpost in the state deeply concerning and acknowledged the threat posed by the CCP is very real. The centers work with China's Ministry of Public Security. The DOJ has asserted the ministry conducts covert intelligence operations in the U.S. That includes illegal transnational repression schemes. Other GOP lawmakers also expressed concerns about the CCP service centers last week. Senators John Cornyn, Pete Ricketts, and Deb Fisher say they are communicating with the FBI about the centers. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And in Australia, a new report is out from a years-long inquiry into a state lawmaker's business dealings with China. The report says a former premier engaged in corrupt conduct with another lawmaker who she was in a secret romantic relationship with. When the investigation became public a couple of years ago, she stepped down. My resignation will take effect as soon as the New South Wales Liberal Party can elect a new parliamentary leader. We must manage conflicts of interest and in particular declare them. Uh, That has been a fundamental principle since the foundation of the New South Wales Parliament. It (laughs) remains the case today. That's the current Premier speaking today. The former Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, denies wrongdoing. But the state's corruption watchdog says she failed to notify them of her concerns that former lawmaker Daryl McGuire may have engaged in corrupt conduct. The inquiry said McGuire sought to use his government office for business deals with China, which he would benefit from personally. He also told the watchdog that he helped Chinese nationals to fraudulently acquire visas for cash. He was forced to step down earlier after a separate corruption inquiry. Berejiklian could not be immediately reached for comment. In other news, huge gravitational waves rolling through the universe bend space-time. Scientists believe the waves are generated when enormous black holes merge. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the study. Astronomers have found signs of super-slow gravitational waves that distort space-time as they roll through the universe. Researchers from the Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, or Nanograv, believe merging galaxies cause these low-frequency waves. When galaxies merge, so do their black holes. So gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time that travel at the speed of light. And they can come from some of the most violent processes in the universe, like supermassive black hole mergers. The Nanograv team used radio telescopes to record astronomical data at places like the Very Large Array in New Mexico and the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia. This is really the beginning of nanohertz gravitational wave astronomy. And what's next is making maps of the gravitational wave background and going after the individual supermassive black hole binaries. We really know very little about supermassive black hole binaries at all. The group looked at burned out stars called pulsars. These stars send out radio pulses, which are emitted at almost perfectly timed intervals. The signal should arrive on Earth at highly predictable times. Scientists found tiny variations, billionths of seconds earlier or later than expected. Differences between the expected and the actual arrival times could be due to gravitational waves transiting our galaxy. 
And that's because gravitational waves change the distances between objects. Space-time warps as the huge gravitational waves travel through the universe. Nanograv's study is the first evidence of a gravitational wave background across the entire universe. They're announcing this week is pretty spectacular. It's a really impressive accomplishment. They've been working towards it for, you know, decades, literally. This discovery could just be the beginning, and more research could help solve the many other mysteries of our universe. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. What's it like to have an entire plane all to yourself? A real estate agent shares his unique experience flying from Oklahoma City to Charlotte. Phil Stringer's American Airlines flight was canceled due to severe storms last weekend. It was pushed back seven times, an 18-hour delay in total. Stringer said he had to attend several meetings Monday morning, so he decided to wait. When the flight finally took off at midnight, he was the only passenger on board. When I get to the gate, no one was there except for the gate agent. And I looked at her, I was like, did you guys already board? Are you waiting on me? And she was like, no, honey. She said, you're the only passenger left in this airport. <laughs> and the whole thing was, look, this is not a great situation. I didn't want to wait 18 hours for my flight. I know they didn't want to be drugged from their hotel to the airport. But look, you can either have a negative attitude and make it worse, or you can force yourself to have a positive attitude and just have fun. Stringer said he felt sorry for the staff who were called in from the hotel, but in turn, they teased him, saying they wouldn't have snacks for him. Stringer filmed himself joking around with a baggage handler and the flight attendants. He said he had a great time with the crew on the flight, and the videos he posted on social media have gained huge number of views. Okay, how does the idea of drinking recycled urine and sweat sound? Not appealing at all, right? But that's what NASA is working on doing inside the International Space Station. The agency has announced its engineers have found a way to recycle those liquids from astronauts on the ISS. They say while the idea might make some people squeamish, it's a way to meet one of astronauts' basic needs, water, without resupply missions from Earth. Each crew member needs about a gallon of water per day for consumption, food preparation, and hygiene. NASA says the new system works to collect wastewater and moisture released into the cabin air from astronauts' breath and sweat. Then it's treated and processed into clean, potable water. Scientists say it's been carefully tested and has proven reliable. NASA says the process is similar to some city water distribution systems on Earth, but far superior. And coming up, a group of grandparents races for first place at a Washington horse track, proving that age is no barrier to sports excellence, or at least a good time. Get those details right here on NTD News Today. Good to have you back with us. South Koreans are glad to become one or two years younger. The country is scrapping the traditional way of counting age. Under a new law taking effect this week, the country now uses the international way to calculate age. Traditionally, Koreans were considered one year old at birth, with one year added on each January 1st. The international paradigm starts at zero at birth and adds one year on each birthday. The country has applied the international approach in medical and legal documents since the early 1960s, while in other areas, many citizens still preferred the traditional way. 
But a survey last year showed that more than 85% of people are now willing to use the international age. I'm supposed to be 30 next year in traditional Korean age system. But with this new age system, I became two years younger. It's just great to feel like you're getting younger. I'm going to study abroad in the UK, so I think it's less confusing that I don't need to explain about Korean age and just can say my international age in other countries. South Korea uses a third age system for military recruitment, school enrollment, and for calculating the legal age for drinking and smoking. Under it, a person's age starts at zero at birth and increases by one year on January 1st. Officials said this method will remain in place for now. Instead of betting on the horses, what may be trendy now is to put bets on grandparents. The city of Auburn, Washington, hosted a first-ever grandparents race on a horse track. When the gates opened, it wasn't racehorses that rushed out. Over 20 seniors sprinted to the finish line as fast as they could. Footage showed two runners tumbling over the bumpy dirt road, but no serious injuries were reported. Most of the others managed to complete the 40-yard course. The winner was Steve Butler in a blue shirt. According to organizer Emerald Down Racecourse, it might be the first such sporting event to celebrate grandparents. Seniors also get free entry and prizes drawing during Grandparents Weekend. After nearly three decades in an enclosure, a rescued chimpanzee caught her first glimpse of the open sky and three open acres to roam. Vanilla spent her early years in a medical research lab. She was later transferred to a wildlife sanctuary in California, but remained living in an enclosure. This month, she was freed to a small island in Florida with another fellow chimp. Nonprofit Save the Chimps led the rescue effort. They said Vanilla has settled into the family group on the island and enjoyed exploring and grooming with the other members. A scientist has dedicated his life to saving an endangered species in southeastern Brazil. The animal is known as the Moriqui. It's the largest monkey in the Americas. Karen Stryer began her research four decades ago, kicking off one of the longest-running primate studies in the world. At the time, the species was on the verge of extinction, with only 50 left in this Atlantic forest. That was due to deforestation and habitat loss. Although they have a life expectancy of 45 years, females can only give birth once every three years, which slows down efforts at repopulation. These monkeys are also called forest gardeners. They act as seed dispersers, eating fruits from tall trees and excreting the seeds onto the forest floor. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News.